Welcome to Michael and us. I'm Will Sloan here as always with Luke Savage. Welcome back, everyone. There's a breaking story here I want to just mention off the top. Uh, this is from the Washington Post from uh, Lauren Gurley and Jeff Stein, top labor official, union leader among contenders for labor secretary. Somebody sent this to me and I thought it must be a joke, but uh, it's, it's not apparently. The White House is vetting top labor official Julie Sue and the president of the country's largest flight attendants union, Sarah Nelson, to lead the Department of Labor after Labor Secretary Marty Walsh steps down in March. Three people familiar with the matter said Friday. So look, Sarah Nelson of the flight attendants union is definitely not going to be uh, the next American Secretary of Labor, but that's incredibly cool. I hope someone at the White House falls asleep or something during the vetting so that that happens because Sarah Nelson is one of the coolest labor leaders in the United States right now. Anyway, it won't happen, but, uh, you know, one can dream. Well, we've got a jam-packed episode full of interesting things. We've got a good movie on this episode. The Patreon episode this week will not be a good movie, (laughs) to say the least. Uh, By the way, you can see some of our Patreon episodes at patreon.com slash Michael and us. In fact, you can see all of them at (laughs) patreon.com slash Michael and us. For a mere five Yankee dollars a month. Yeah, we'll get the advertisement out of the way right off the top. Uh, For five dollars a month, you can subscribe at the Al Gore tier. I don't know what that is in euros or Iraqi dinars or any other currency, but five Yankee dollars a month gets you the Al Gore tier. Ten dollars a month gets you the superdelegate tier, which allows you to join the tiny elite, which every month gets to make us watch uh, exactly one film. You get to vote in a poll. But we got a thriving community on there. If you like the free episodes, you get an extra episode every single week. You also get all kinds of bonus content, interviews that I do in my day job at Jacobin and all kinds of other goodies. So patreon.com slash Michael and us, check it out. And for $1,000 a month, you can get us to do anything. (laughs) Anything, (laughs) folks. All right, listen, uh, I'd like to start this episode by talking just a little bit about Canada. Uh, We have socialized medicine in Canada, and we're very lucky. I would definitely not trade our position for the position of most of you listening to this podcast. (laughs) Um, But you know, folks, there's an assumption that once people give you a right, it's very difficult to take that right away. And that's not strictly true. Universal health care in Canada is always under some form of attack, and the most insidious attacks are the ones that come disguised as an expansion of our rights, you know, a way to make the system better. And this past week in the province of Ontario, where Luke and myself call home, uh, Doug Ford's conservative government tabled a bill that will allow for the expansion of private clinics to open and conduct surgeries covered under OHIP, the Ontario Health Insurance Plan, which is our public health care system. And this comes presented to us as a way to ease the burden of our overburdened public hospitals, which suffered so heavily during the pandemic. In Canada, the provinces control their own healthcare systems, and the Ford government, which was already underfunding it, has used the pandemic as an opportunity to show why the system is not working. And it's true, the system is very bad. I say this having recently dealt with it very closely. But the problem isn't that too many people are getting cancer. Back in 2014, Doug Ford's party, the Ontario Progressive Conservatives, lost a very winnable election by promising to cut 100,000 public service jobs. And they obviously thought that this would be a way to harness, you know, (laughs) resentment towards lazy, overpaid government employees. Well, just to interject to say that uh, one of the funniest things about that was that... uh, 
they pledged as part of something that was billed as the million jobs plan, you know, one million <laughs> jobs. The opening sort of like pitch for that plan was we're going to cut 100,000 public service jobs. But all those people will get new jobs. <laughs> and from that, Acorn, a million jobs bloom. A mighty oak will, will grow. Yes, that's right. Um, but anyway, they quickly found that those 100,000 people vote and they all have friends and family who vote. And even if you don't know any public sector employees, the idea of somebody else losing their job isn't enough to get you out to the polls. You know, there's got to be something tangible for you in there. So now their ideas come presented with words like innovation and disruption and challenging the status quo. So they're not promising further cuts to public health care because, you know, we all need to toughen up and be serious. And they're certainly not promising a two-tiered system where, you know, American healthcare companies come in and drain public resources and add all sorts of user fees. Instead, they're promising more choice. You know, you've got that great system, but you know, if you've, let's say you've just, you know, you just want to cut in line a little bit more. Uh, what could be the harm in that? Well, it's great. And then you pay the money and then the, that money like subsidizes the system as a whole. So what, what's the problem? What could go wrong, <laughs> you know? And anyway, the conservatives have a enormous majority in our provincial parliament. And uh, I don't know what to do except talk about it on mic. <laughs> Well, I'm glad you brought this up because it speaks to something that's happening more widely and not just in Canada. I mean, because of the pandemic and, uh, you know, among other things, because of the tremendous budgetary deficits incurred by lots of governments, you know, there's a new offensive against the welfare state. I think that was uh, basically inevitable. I think back in 2020, I wrote something to that effect, like we're going to see another round of austerity in one form or another as the pandemic winds down. And um, you're seeing something kind of similar to this right now uh, that I wrote about a few weeks ago for Navarra Media because uh, there's something very similar happening in Britain right now. There's kind of a perception that things aren't aren't working. And, you know, I think to some extent anyway, there's a perception which has, you know, been seeded by, uh, you know, 30 years of kind of Thatcherite duopoly of, you know, new labor and, and the Tories, you know, seeding the idea that, yeah, the private sector is synonymous with innovation and dynamism and all that. And the public sector is kind of a state ossified, you know, remnant of the old world or, or something like that. In the British context, you know, the Blair government introduced NHS trusts, or at least I think it was them that introduced those. There's already all kinds of private sector involvement in the NHS. Canada's healthcare system is different than the NHS. I mean, both are universal systems, but there are different ways to get to universality. I mean, personally, even speaking as a Canadian, I prefer what the Labour government of Clement Attlee did in 1945, where they just nationalized all the hospitals. In Canada, you know, we have a single-payer insurance system, but we don't have the kind of fully public system that exists in Britain with something like the NHS. Now, it's not exactly clear what Rishi Sunak's government is going to do about this. But Sajid Javid, who was a health secretary uh, under Boris Johnson, recently published this op-ed in The Times. And what he's basically advocating is for the introduction of user fees in the NHS. And there's a few comments I want to make about this that are all, I think, applicable in different ways to what's going on in Canada right now. The first is that, you know, I'll note that Javid in his op-ed, you know, he's very careful to 
defend the principle of universality. And some people might read into that. I mean, I think there's like, there'd be a certain kind of liberal reading of that, you know, particularly a certain kind of American liberal might read that and they'd think, oh, well, there's like a more benevolent kind of Tory in the UK. Conservatives aren't as bad. They're not like the nasty Republicans we have here. I don't think that's true at all. I think that it is notable that uh, Sajid Javid, uh, somebody with his politics, was defending the universal principles of the NHS. But I don't think that's because the the right-wing ideology in Britain is more benign. I think it's because the NHS is, you know, an incredibly popular and successful institution, which has a huge popular constituency that's invested in it. Um, Another comment I'd make about the op-ed is that, you know, Javid, he makes the case for user fees, which like, you know, I will say this is worse than what uh, is currently happening in Ontario. I mean, who knows if there's like another Doug Ford mandate. I remember the idea of user fees being tossed around, you know, periodically in Canada, it's tossed around by like a certain kind of wonk who claims like they love universal health care. But hey, we just need to like, <laughs> we need new revenue tools. That's always they always use technocratic phrases like revenue tools, things like that. But so Javid does this in his op-ed and he starts talking about how much wait times will be reduced, you know, if people have to pay, you know, 20, 30, 50 pounds. I can't remember how high up he goes. He makes a case for kind of means testing it. He doesn't want, you know, uh, poor citizens paying the highest rates. But he explicitly says in his op-ed that the purpose of this is basically to create like a disincentive for people to use the NHS. So even if he's defending the principle of universality as the Ford government is doing here in Ontario, the nefarious design is sort of built into what he's proposing. At the end of the day, you can either have a fully publicly funded and publicly managed system of universal public health care, or you can start introducing the idea of market incentives, or in this case, market disincentives to people using the system, that kind of thing. Uh, You can have one or the other. And I really have kind of a left-wing version of the argument uh, Hayek made in The Road to Serfdom with something like this. I mean, I think once you start down the path of user fees, which, you know, Sajid Javid is at least teasing in the UK, or you do what the Ford government is actually doing here in Ontario, where, you know, you just kind of open a market for private clinics, and then you have the state cover them. It's just a slippery slope to, you know, you will get to private health care at some point if the course isn't reversed. You will get to the point where there is one level of service for people who can pay for it and, uh, you know, another level of service or, you know, several lower levels of service for people who can't. There already are contexts in Canada where governments will outsource. I know this happened in British Columbia in the last few years where governments will outsource, you know, certain surgeries to private clinics. And it's not even efficient on its own terms because, you know, private deliverers have to make they have to make a profit and someone has to pay for that when you factor profit into uh, the delivery of a basic need like healthcare and the public sector is still paying for it all you're doing is just adding an additional cost so it's not even efficient you know on its own terms it doesn't quote unquote save money in the long run i have a rather naive and innocent question i'd like to ask you about this i mean in canada one of the problems with our parliamentary democracy is if the party you don't like gets over 50% of the seats they can do pretty much anything they want so um when something like this happens uh, what do, what does popular resistance look like, do you think? What options do we have at our disposal? Well, obviously, you know, the, the Ford Conservatives can be defeated at the next election. Uh, uh, by four, the way... Four years from now, yeah. Uh, no, not, not quite that long, but... Uh, 
But by the way, I, I should add uh, just we have a federal government in Canada and the federal government is not resisting what Doug Ford is doing. In fact, uh, Justin Trudeau did an interview with uh, Susan Delacour at the Toronto Star recently, and he, he used the word that you mentioned earlier, innovation in that, relation. That's, our, that's the liberal government, that's I'd just right. like to underline. Right. That is, yeah, that is our like, yeah, uh, woke liberal government that uh, in 2015 when it was elected, we were told was, you know, basically a radical socialist government by much of the American and British pundit class. But yeah, so Justin Trudeau is not really coming out against this. I mean, there's a wider context for uh, what's going on right now, which is that the way Canadian healthcare is funded and administered is pretty complicated. You have individual provinces. Canada is just a very decentralized federation. I think Belgium might be the only country, and it's the only country I can think of offhand that has a less powerful federal government. But in Canada, you know, you basically have every province owns its own natural resources, runs uh, education, healthcare, that kind of thing. So, I mean, I feel like Americans in particular are, are likely under the impression that Canada, because of, you know, socialized medicine, universal uh, public health insurance, oh, it's probably like, you know, very centralized like a European country. That's absolutely not true. In fact, the American federal government is much more powerful. Uh, What we have in Canada is a very decentralized federation, and I would say probably more uniformity in terms of social policy. Like, you don't have, that I'm aware of, the phenomenon where, like, certain American states will introduce like extremely retrograde social policies, you know, bans on certain things, restrictions on speech or whatever, and, you know, advanced under the aegis of states' rights or whatever. Canada is very decentralized, but it's more like it's decentralized in terms of the administrative state and, uh, you know, where the resources of the state are concentrated. Anyway, that's all a very long-winded backstory to the wider context if we're talking about healthcare, that the federal government has recently been engaged in one of these kind of periodic uh, negotiations with the provinces over how Medicare is funded. So when Medicare was first introduced in the 1960s, the federal government paid uh, about half the tab for it. Uh, in terms of transfers to the provinces. Now, that's been uh, significantly reduced over time. And uh, I'm really just bringing this up to knock the Trudeau government further because it sounds like it is, you know, finally kind of reaching a point where it's going to make a health accord with the provinces. However, uh, from what I can tell, a lot of the funding, a lot of the money is not really earmarked for specific things. And so, you know, if you have a government like Doug Ford's, you know, the money that it's getting is not necessarily earmarked for specific things. And I mean, it's not even going to be allocated, as far as I can tell, in the spirit of Medicare as it was originally written, which, you know, provinces weren't going to get this money when the program was first set up, unless it met certain very basic conditions around universality and things like that. And if Justin Trudeau is going to call outsourcing to private clinics innovation, then I don't have a lot of faith that, you know, there's a deep conviction among Canadian elites in preserving the fundamentals of this model, even if they will still rhetorically kind of align themselves with the universal aspect of it. Now, in terms of what can be done to uh, resist this, I mean, yeah, obviously the most the, the most obvious answer is, uh, yeah, change the government. Uh, we need a different federal government, one that doesn't suck and one that isn't led by Pierre Polyevra. Uh, and we need a different provincial government that isn't led by Doug Ford or anyone like him. 
I mean, I think the, the, the proper left answer to your question is that, you know, uh, a, a few months ago, unions in Ontario mobilized for a general strike and in the span of a few days forced the Ford government to backtrack on its promise to override the Canadian Constitution to force teachers back to work. General strike didn't go ahead because it didn't even need to. The threat of a general strike was enough to make the Ford government back down. And so I guess my point is if that level of pressure, if that kind of organized resistance could be mobilized in Ontario or in Canada more broadly around the issue of health care and, you know, the privatization and outsourcing of health care, people like Doug Ford and Justin Trudeau would backtrack in, in the span of a few days. I think the biggest worry about something, you know, my biggest worry about something like this is that by sort of eroding public health care incrementally, as is happening right now, it's much harder to create the kind of flashpoint around it that we would need. Now, if there's ever any attempt to introduce user fees or anything like that. I mean, I think that's kind of the point at which, you know, you say this far and no further, and it's a lot easier to mobilize people. Fortunately, we're not uh, at that point yet, and I sincerely hope we never get there. Well, I got a story I want to share with you. You know, it's a story about, you know, things that I know are dear to both of our hearts, uh, namely Fox News and also Um, election conspiracies around the 2020 U.S. presidential election. The election was stolen, folks. Fox News. You know what I call it? I call it fake news, (laughs) folks, because it's fake. Well, I have to say, I rarely write about Fox News because, you know, if you've listened to the show for a long time, you know that, you know, I'm a skeptic of what I see as a kind of longstanding liberal ontology of, uh, well, of, of, of American politics, if we're talking about Fox News specifically, but I would say more generally now uh, at this point, there is an idea that you see absolutely everywhere as, you know, neoliberalism just enters its kind of crisis stage and there's just kind of a further disintegration of uh, social cohesion and democratic politics. There's an idea that's very popular and I understand why it's popular and has a lot of buy-in. It's a very seductive idea that all these problems are because of, yeah, fake news, misinformation, and particularly bad faith right-wing actors, you know, big media networks like Fox News. They tell people the bad facts that make them vote for the bad guys and you know that's how you get the bad things you know that's not uh, that's not the most good faith rendering obviously of that narrative politics from myself but I think that's kind of broadly what defines it and this goes back a long way I mean when I think back to kind of uh, where our little podcast started and kind of the um, you know liberal kitsch perhaps of the early 2000s I mean that was everywhere at that time right in the Bush era it was very commonplace for you know critics of that administration to think you know if we didn't have a uh, things like Fox News, you know, if we didn't have this, you know, terrifying, you know, Rupert Murdoch Death Star or whatever, we wouldn't have the Bush administration. And in fact, what if we had a liberal radio station? <laughs> right. One that had liberal stars like Al Franken and Janine Garofalo. <laughs> right. And in addition to bringing up something important, you also uh, reminded me of one of, I think, my favorite things we ever watched for this podcast, which was, of course, that documentary about the short-lived and, shall we say, uh, somewhat fraught Fox News of the left as it was billed left of the dial was the tagline for it was the name of the episode also the tagline for air america which yeah was going to be the uh, fox news of the left but so you know i'm not generally as interested in this stuff but i found myself getting really fascinated by this ongoing lawsuit defamation lawsuit 
against Fox News. This is from a company called Dominion Voting Systems, which became central. It was kind of name dropped many times by you know people around Donald Trump as you know part of the conspiracy theory that the 2020 election was stolen. You know, it was associated with rigged vote tallies and and you know things of that nature. So in the wake of Fox aligning itself with with the complaints of Trump land that the 2020 election was stolen, you know, this company basically initiated a a defamation lawsuit against Fox News. Now, according to Media Matters, which a a large number of their staff seem to be just employed and like they watch Fox News for a living and uh, document its various falsehoods. But I found an analysis from them which found that the Fox network and its hosts questioned the integrity of the 2020 election results nearly 800 times. This is just in the two-week period after the Fox network itself called the election for Joe Biden. Now, why this story is interesting to me is not even really because of anything specifically to do with the kind of meme on the right that's obviously a stupid one about, you know, Joe Biden actually lost the 2020 election, you know, uh, was stolen from Donald Trump, etc. Obviously, that's not true. But at this point, I find kind of like the liberal obsession with pointing out that it's not true a little tiresome as well. The reason this story was interesting to me was because of the insight that the lawsuit has provided because of the filing, which was made public just very recently, earlier this month, into how the Fox News network functions. Now, among other things, I think it's safe to say, I think it's fair to say that this filing provides pretty irrefutable proof that not only has the Fox network lied to its viewers, but it's lied to its viewers knowingly. And the reason I say that is because as part of the filing, there are numerous quotes from leading editorial staff and anchors at Fox News, where it's abundantly clear that they were giving credence to the idea that the 2020 election was stolen. They were allowing its integrity to be questioned, while behind the scenes, like in this private correspondence, they just knew that that was completely made up. So for example, um, this is Kurt courtesy of a list compiled by Media Matters from the filing. Tucker Carlson messaging his producer, Alex Pfeiffer, uh, about Sidney Powell. Sidney Powell was one of the, you know, if you're not aware of the zillions of characters involved in all of this, Sidney Powell was one of the Trump attorneys who was very prominent in kind of pushing these series. You know, uh, Powell is lying, uh, he said. Laura Ingram sent a message to both Tucker Carlson and Sean Hannity, who apparently were part of some kind of like group DM. This was, I think, the date before the message I just quoted, Sidney Powell is nuts. Sorry, but she is. Carlson to Laura Ingram. Sidney Powell is lying, by the way. I caught her. It's insane. Ingram replies, Sidney is a complete nut. No one will work with her. Ditto Rudy. Rudy Giuliani, obviously. Tucker Carlson replies, it's unbelievably offensive to me. Our viewers are good people and they believe it. Um, Now, it's not just anchors who are quoted in this filing. Fox politics editor Chris Steyerwald, I think this is from a deposition related to the suit, he said, of the allegation that, you know, Dominion voting systems rigged the election. Quote, no reasonable person would have thought that. Laura Ingram's producer, Tommy Firth, texting Fox executive Ron Mitchell. This was on the 8th of November, 2020. Quote, this Dominion shit is going to give me a fucking aneurysm as many times as I've told Laura it's BS. She sees shit posters and Trump tweeting about it. There's another instance from around the same time, Tucker Carlson complaining to Sean Hannity about the Fox reporter, Jackie Heinrich, 
who uh, was fact-checking a, a tweet uh, on Twitter where Trump had mentioned Dominion and had specifically mentioned both Hannity and Lou Dobbs's broadcast from the same evening mentioning Dominion. And Carlson is reported to have written to Hannity, please get her fired. Seriously, what the fuck? I'm actually shocked. It needs to stop immediately like tonight. It's immeasurably hurting the company. The stock price is down. Not a joke. Now, I bring all this up not because I think it makes these people look sympathetic. I'm certainly not trying to do that. But I do think it's very interesting that, you know, I feel like there is a certain interpretation of what goes on at Fox News that, you know, these people are right wing ideologues and like that's why they push this stuff. And you can see here, like, look, they, they know this, this, this stuff isn't true. Uh, the wider context for this is that on November 8th, 2020, the Fox News Network called the election for Joe Biden. They faced a huge backlash from their own audience and from various figures in Trump land such that even like on-air talent, like these are not corporate people, you know, at least not by their title, like Tucker Carlson, you heard it in that thing I just quoted, you know, they're worrying about the stock price. And something that comes up frequently in the filing is that Fox personnel were specifically worried about losing market share to Newsmax, which of course is one of these further right Fox competitors. They were even worried that this guy, Mike Lindell, who's that like Trump-aligned pillow magnet that you may have heard of, um, he was going on Newsmax, he was dissing Fox News, and apparently the executives like send him a gift and like a letter or something because they were like, we have to stay in, in Mike Lindell's good books. But so Newsmax looms very large in all of this. And Tucker Carlson, after the network, after Fox, that is, called the election for Biden, apparently texted his producer, quote, do the executives understand how much credibility and trust we've lost with our audience? We're playing with fire for real. An alternative like Newsmax could be devastating for us. And there's further exchanges from executives at the network that are similar in spirit. You know, one of them remarking, you know, she was trying to get everyone to, quote, comprehend that we are on a war footing. So this is vis-a-vis a business competitor. And that's the context for these conversations. Now, the reason this interested me is because I think it shows you that, you know, once you strip away the kind of artifice of, you know, uh, right-wing politics around which the whole Fox business model is based, what you have is like something very banal and quotidian, which is just they're worried about their stock price. Like, they called the election for Joe Biden, and this, among other things, you know, created a business problem for them, which they had to solve. <laughs> and they tried to stick handle it very carefully in a way that necessitated them lying to their viewers, even though <laughs> the people who were doing the lying knew that the things they were saying were untrue. And I think that this is, frankly, a very useful demystification of something like Fox News. I feel like liberals have persistently treated it as like this, you know, the people at Fox are doing this like terrifying sorcery. And it's like, I understand what what's meant by that in a sense, but it's like you peel that away. And it's like, no, there's just this is just a corporate business model. And that's what they're pursuing. And obviously, there is a fundamental contradiction between that business model and telling people the truth. And I would extend that because I think it applies to, you know, the American corporate media as a whole. I mean, for all of the anxiety and, and kind of a focus of, you know, the fake news discourse, misinformation, information discourse on, you know, well, right-wing media, but I mean, specifically just social media as a medium. I feel like it's fair to say that social media, you know, sites like Facebook and Twitter are often central, if not kind of overwhelming in the role that they play in, you know, fake news and misinformation discourse, right? And, you know, we talked about that on a recent episode in our, in our conversation about, you know, Russian bots and on Twitter and the, and the 2016 election. 
you know, Twitter bots cost Hillary Clinton the election, stuff like that. But it's really, really important to underscore that far more people not only get their news from major cable networks, but if you look at the polling, people don't trust the things they see on social media in the way that they trust things that they see on network news. Like network news, cable news has a lot more legitimacy. So when lies are broadcast, when false narratives are broadcast, it has a much greater impact, I think, than stuff that you see on Twitter or bot activity or anything like that. I do think something like Fox News probably bears a disproportionate uh, you know, share of the blame for spreading misinformation. But look, liberal networks do this as well. I mean, after the 2016 election, there was polling conducted by YouGov, which is a very reputable polling company, which found that a majority of self-identified Democratic voters, I think this polling was released in either 2017 or, or 2018, uh, a majority of Democratic voters believed that the Russian government had, had literally literally uh, hacked and altered the vote tallies on election day itself. Now, I don't think that so many people would have believed something like that, for which there's absolutely no evidence, if corporate networks that happen to be aligned with the liberal side of American politics as opposed to the conservative one had not invested themselves so heavily in this very diaphanous narrative around hacking, which, you know, hacking became this word that you'd see kind of thrown around in the wake of 2016. And it gave people a completely mistaken impression of reality. And again, I think that you can trace it back to the business model that's at work here. There are partisan considerations as well, but I mean, as you can see, I think, with this filing around Fox News and the 2020 election, at the end of the day, what it comes down to more than anything is just the bottom line of these big companies, which may be media organizations, but first and foremost are for-profit businesses, and that's ultimately how they operate. We were watching one of our favorite YouTubers earlier today, somebody who sometimes delves into the world of conspiracy theories. Uh, he was he was telling this funny story about his third eye opened when he saw that famous picture of Obama and Hillary and Biden and everyone, you know, at the table watching, you know, seeing seeing the assassination of Osama bin Laden as it unfolded. And he realized that, like, this was a staged photograph. You know, he, he couldn't believe it. Like, they staged this photograph. This wasn't real. Like, why is everybody so perfectly posed? And this led him down the path to being a conspiracy theorist. And, you know, he's an equal opportunity conspiracy theorist. He's interested in all conspiracies, whether it's Flat Earth, whether it's Sandy Hook. He has no particular politics. He doesn't know why the elites are lying to us. He just knows that, like, things are off and the media is lying. And he's bothered by that. It fucks him up. He's still not affiliated with one side or the other. You know, seeing how upset he was by all of this, you realize how both like boring, but also like weirdly comforting it is to know that, oh, it's just capitalism. That's all it is. <laughs> like everything is just capitalism. Yeah, absolutely. More than anything else, that's why I found myself fascinated by what is otherwise a pretty boring lawsuit against Fox News. Anyway, folks, you've been a very patient audience. We do have a movie today. And, you know, a conversation about journalistic ethics uh, couldn't be a better setup <laughs> for the very acclaimed film Close Up. Well, Jean-Luc Godard said 
film begins with D.W. Griffith and ends with Abbas Kiarostami, a very Godardian thing to say. <laughs> Martin Scorsese said Kiarostami represents the highest level of artistry in cinema, and Werner Herzog called Close Up the greatest documentary ever made about filmmaking, which is high praise given that he's in one of the other great ones, uh, Burden of Dreams. So uh, we're talking about Kiarostami and Close Up from 1990, one of the most acclaimed films of all time. It placed, I think, number 17 in the recent Sight and Sound list. In, we, in which one of the co-hosts of this podcast voted, I believe. I, I was a voter on, in, in that list. <laughs> Pretty yes. cool. Uh, back before we had this podcast, Luke and I used to actually have movie nights and, <laughs> you know, where we just watch movies <laughs> before we started watching Alexandra Pelosi movies. <laughs> And um, I, about a couple of months ago, I was watching Kiarostami. I, I was just thinking, God, if Luke and I still had movie nights, he would love Kiarostami. I, I got to show I got to figure out a way to contrive a way to, to monetize this. And finally, we have. So you liked this film, right? Close up. Oh, it's incredible. Yeah. I'd heard only good things about this film and only good things by uh, what I think is Maybe a more famous film by Kiarostami, A Taste of Cherry of, That's from correct. 1997, yes. which I've not seen, but I'm. Uh, but we, I we will should watch it. I will definitely be watching that soon. Uh, but no, this uh, this film's extraordinary. A little background on Kiarostami and his milieu. He is probably the most important figure in the Iranian New Wave. I'm not an expert on this, but the New Wave occurred in a couple of forms over the decades. The first New Wave occurred between about 1969, 1970, and 1979. Before that, you know, after the 1953 coup, there was a popular cinema. Yeah, and of course, the context for the coup in the 1950s was that the reformist government of Mohammad Mossadegh tried to nationalize Iran's oil. And, uh, you know, the, the, the State Department and British intelligence were like, no, 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 no. And that's how you got the Shah. <laughs> well, uh, there was a popular cinema that flourished under the Shah. But then in the late 1960s, early 1970s, there were films like, and I'm saying this as if I know these films and have seen them, but Dariush Merjoy's The Cow from 1969. I think that was, if I'm correct, that was the one that really kicked it off. It was the first Iranian film to get international exposure. After the Shah was deposed, in the decades that followed, there was a relaxation of censorship that allowed for a further flowering of Iranian cinema, the best known of which probably comes from the 1990s. Filmmakers like Kiarostami, Jafar Panahi, a filmmaker who's very important to this movie, Mossad Makhmalbev. When people talk about the Iranian new wave, these films from the 90s are the films that are best known. Just a paragraph from a Guardian obituary for Kiarostami, uh, which was published in 2016 after he died. And this is a very kind of a Western take on the Iranian new wave. It said... Of all the new wave cinemas, the Iranian was probably the most surprising because it emerged from under an authoritarian religious regime. Kiarostami managed, on the whole, to avoid censorship by the government. Rather than confront the censorship office, he accepted their general guidelines and, working within the framework, made films that imply meaning beyond it. Now, Kiarostami began his filmmaking career in 1970 after a long period working as a commercial illustrator. Right. He, so, he wor so he worked. He was working before the Iranian Revolution. And his filmmaking career essentially began around the same time that that first Iranian new wave began. He helped create a film department at the Institute for Intellectual Development of Children and Young Adults in Tehran. And for the first decade or so of his career, he focused on films about children, first short films, then features, where he honed and 
and perfected the sort of style that we associate with him. The working with non-professional actors and the use of their stories, uh, that's something, by the way, that he has sometimes come under criticism for. He's been accused of exploitation at times over his career. Uh, That's a very thorny issue and one that I'm uh, underqualified to talk about, but I'm just putting it on the record. The Cliff's Notes summary is that he's a minimalist filmmaker. His films imply more than they show. He freely mixes documentary and fiction, uh, never more so than in this film that we watch today. And they do require the audience to come towards them a little bit. They require the audience to be an active participant and to complete what he's implying. Yeah, I'm glad you read uh, that obituary from The Guardian because I was frustrated in trying to do background reading for this episode in that it was very difficult to find anything written in English that kind of wasn't inflected with just like a very Western perspective. I mean, I don't want to knock it because I'm about to quote from it, but um, for example, the essay by uh, Godfrey Cheshire, which is uh, accompanies the Criterion release of this film, uh, it's, it's a very good essay. I'm not criticizing it, but I wish they'd included in the book booklet, not as a replacement for this, but just as a supplement to it, something that uh, had a less Western perspective built into it. I mean, the last line of the piece is, yet it is the self-aware, suffering Sabian's character in the movie of Close Up who touched the world's imagination and survives as an icon of the Iranian cinema's humanistic ideals, its faith in the dreams that offer avenues out of the world's worst oppressors. And I mean, look, I'm not even disputing uh, necessarily that conclusion. I just think there there is something of a westernized perspective in that. And uh, it does seem like in the way that this film was received, I mean, from what I could glean, the reception of this film when it came out anyway in 1990 in Iran itself was, you know, kind of mixed, kind of lukewarm, and eventually found a much more positive and effusive reception in the West. I know that Taste of Cherry met with some censorship issues in Iran because it dealt with suicide, which, of course, is a verboten topic in a theocracy. But but also, but at the same time, and I'm glad you brought that up, because it also won cans, right? It won the Palme d'Or in uh, 1997, and I believe it was the first Iranian film to do so. It can be comforting or easy to automatically peg the filmmakers from the countries that, you know, we've we've deemed the bad countries, whether it's Iran or China or Russia or wherever as as sort of... As, who's, who's we? Don't include me in this. Uh, uh, tastemakers. <laughs> uh, cult, cu- cultural uh, arbiters. Um, it, it, it can be easy to want to position the ones that cross over as a dissident figures in some way, and it can be difficult to think of them as... As national figures. I doubt Kiristami would view himself as a dissident, even though, you know, it's probably comforting to, I don't know, try to fit that square peg in that round hole. Yeah, Mr. Neocon film critic over here. <laughs> um, but I, I do want to read from this essay, uh, which, you know, as I, as I said, just to repeat, I, I don't want to criticize it, but uh, this essay by Godfrey Cheshire, which sets out the context for this extraordinary film close up and the kind of multiple levels on which it operates. He writes, In the autumn of 1989, the Iranian magazine Sourish printed a story about an unusual crime. A poor man had been arrested for impersonating a celebrated film director, Mohsen Makmobah, to a middle-class family in northern Tehran. Although the accused, Hossein Sabzian, had accepted some money from the Akana family, the main motivation for his ruse did not appear to be financial. 
Rather, he and the Akanas shared a love of cinema, and after an initial impulsive lie about his identity during a chance encounter, Sabzian seemed to have become fixated on the success of his continuing deception, during which he promised the family members parts in his next film and rehearsed them for their roles. It was only when Makmobab appeared unaware that he had won an award at an Italian film festival, an event reported in Iran's news media, that the Anaka's suspicions crystallized and they alerted the authorities. Sarush's reporter, Hassan Farazmand, witnessed the arrest and at the police station conducted a lengthy interview with Sabzian that figured prominently in the published account of the strange case of the Makmobab impersonator. Upon learning of the case, Abbas Kiristami has said he quickly initiated efforts to make a film about it, even while events were still in motion and the impostor's fate had yet to be decided. Setting aside preparations for another film, the director enlisted the participation of several of the principals, including the Anakas and the real Mosan Makmobov. By the way, apologies for butchering all of the uh, all of these uh, Iranian names. He also approached Sabzian and the court's cleric judge and gained permission to film the trial, during which, as it turned out, Kiristami and his cameras were not neutral observers, but active participants. In addition to filming Sabzian's subsequent release from prison after the complaint was dropped and his emotional meeting with the man he had impersonated, Kiristami shot earlier parts of the story by persuading Sabzian, the Anakas, Farazmand, and others to play themselves in reenactments of events that had already transpired. Close-up is thus neither a documentary nor a drama, but a provocative, unconventional merging of the two, a meditation on perplexities of justice, social inequality, and personal identity that also subtly interrogates the processes and purposes of cinema. So there's a lot going on in this movie. I mean, the most obvious reference point for it from Western cinema would be something like Orson Welles's F for Fake, which we talked about on a much earlier episode of this show. Close Up, like F for Fake, is just an extraordinary film that interrogates the nature of cinema and is just kind of fascinatingly self-aware about what it means to document things. And in the case of this film, you know, what it means to film a trial and then have the filming of the trial be itself part of the film that you are making. I mean, I've never seen anything like this before. I mean, I think the comparison to F for fake is a useful one to a point, but I actually think that there's less kind of visible artifice in it. I think that Kiristami is a lot more subtle about, you know, building in the fact that the film itself is artifice. And, you know, in that respect, I don't think I'd really ever seen a film like Close Up before. Well, to go back and go through what happens in the film in slightly more granular detail, it opens with this scene where a journalist and a driver are heading to the scene where this imposter, Hossein Sabzian, is at this well-to-do house posing as this famous Iranian film director, Mohsen Makmobav. And the police have been tipped off. You know, the family has figured out that he's not who he claims to be. And the journalist, you know, we follow the journalist in this car for quite a long time as he's, you know, excitedly saying to the cab driver, you know, this this story is once in a lifetime. I can't believe I'm going to get this story. We have to get there really quickly. By the way, this guy, his name is Farazmad, uh, was the actual journalist who broke this story. Every, uh, Pretty much everybody, I think, in this film is who they appear to be in Incredible. real life. Incredible. Um, it, amazing, because it's a rather unflattering depiction of him in this film. But anyway, uh, the car makes its way up to the house. Uh, he goes in. 
a couple of people drift in and out. And then finally we see Hossein come out, you know, in handcuffs. The camera hasn't entered the house. The house is this very imposing structure. The article says middle class. I mean, it might be upper class. It has this wall in front of it. And we, as the spectator, are not allowed in this house yet. We're like Hossein would be if he wasn't posing as Makhmabov. We're not allowed in there. But the film doesn't immediately establish its perspective in those opening 10 minutes. And if you haven't seen the film before, it can be disorienting. And while the journalist goes in, we just stay outside a little while with the cab driver as he's milling about. And on top of this pile of leaves, there's this bottle that falls off. What's well, like a, a canister. That's right. Like a spray canister of some kind. And we just follow it as it rolls down the hill for about a minute. <laughs> I got I gotta say, I don't have a deep interpretation of this scene, but I found it very soothing in light of the other film we watched for our Patreon this week. If this is a film about cinema, I think if, the, if he's making a point with this by lingering on something so banal... It's that everything that you see in a film is an editorial choice. And he's zooming in on something that's, you know, completely mundane and does not exist for any higher purpose. Just to underscore that point, everything in film is artifice. And if I have any kind of take on what this whole kind of canister sequence means, I think it would be that. Kiristami shows what appear to be documentary scenes of him talking to, you know, the police who arrested Hossein himself negotiating before the trial with Hossein about going in to film it. I, th- I think these are reconstructed scenes. But the centerpiece of the film, the long trial sequence, was the actual trial. And, uh, you know, it begins with Hossein and the family consenting to have Kiristami film there. And as you observed, even if Kiristami wanted to be a neutral filmmaker, he wouldn't be. The The very presence of the camera makes Hossein the movie star that he always kind of wanted to be and also puts the family in a more difficult situation than they would have been otherwise. Yeah, I mean, these trial scenes are absolutely extraordinary because even though what you're witnessing is an actual trial, you know, overseen by a judge who's a mullah, obviously just by virtue of being recorded, what you're seeing is inflected by that. And also just the way it's shot, I mean, it doesn't look like if you were to watch a, a trial on TV or something, you know, it's shot in a very dramatic way. And there's one just kind of very fleeting shot where you, you're able to see the camera and the lighting and kind of, you know, the, the fourth wall is broken and the, you know, artifice of Kiristami's film reveals itself. Uh, you know, it's very subtle, but it speaks to the wider project of this film and, you know, the, the kind of wider self-awareness that makes this film such an interesting document. From there, the film goes back and forth between scenes of the trial and reenactments of Hossein's deception performed by Hossein and the family as a movie. These sequences are much more lushly photographed than the trial sequences, which look like they're recorded on some kind of video. I could I could be wrong. We see that the matriarch of the family just happened to encounter Hossein on the bus when he was reading a book called The Cyclist by the filmmaker Mosan Makhmalbaf. Makhmalbaf also made a film of the same name. And Hossein just makes a spur-of-the-moment decision to say, oh, you can have this book. I, I wrote it. And she's she's thrilled. I mean, oh my goodness, it's the famous director, Mohsen uh, Makhmabov. And Hossein, who has always dreamed of being a filmmaker, but is a man of very modest means, realizes that this is an opportunity to be the man that he has always felt he was. And that's it's important to say felt he was and not wanted to be. 
he doesn't regard what he's done as fraud, really, because he thinks he could be a filmmaker. Perhaps if, you know, uh, he were in a different class position, he could have become a filmmaker. Yeah, and one of my favorite sequences, I think, in the movie is when he's kind of explaining this before the court. And I think something that's integral to this film is it's not just that he, you know, wants to be famous. I mean, he really does admire him as kind of a social realist filmmaker. And he's, you know, inspired by his artistic vision. And there's one sequence where he goes on to explain to the court that in posing as this famous director, he felt for the first time in his life that, you know, he actually was the thing he wanted to be, that he was an artist, he was a filmmaker. And, you know, part of that is that he's, you know, inhabiting this this role, this character that he's playing before this family. But it's also because other people were treating him like that. And I think that's an important comment that's applicable not just to film, but on just kind of any creative process in general. I mean, something that is very odd and and strange and that I think you have to constantly navigate as a writer is that you can only pull off an idea or an ambition for a piece of writing if you yourself believe in some way that you are equipped to do so. You are you are equipped to be like the, the, the means of conveying that idea, the instrument through which that idea is conveyed, the person who is writing it. And there's no getting around the fact that part of that has to do with, or at least it can have to do with, how others see you and how others receive and interpret your work and your output. I mean, I think there's no getting around the fact that, I mean, and this applies to all kinds of things, not just, you know, writing or or even just, you know, the creative process. So much of identity comes from external sources. Like if people convey to you or, or tell you or communicate to you that you have a particular social role or particular identity or whatever, it's a lot easier to inhabit that identity. In fact, you may find yourself adopting that identity or that role in various forms, whether you mean to or not, or whether you actually kind of consciously identify with it or not. And so this film achieves many things. And I think just in this one scene, it communicates all of that in a way that's really fascinating. Amazing how much it conveys with so little. I mean, there really aren't a lot of scenes in this movie. There's not a lot of stuff that happens in it. Um, and, you know, there's that early scene. It's I think it's a reenactment where Kiristami is talking to one of the people at the court trying to get permission to film there. Sorry, he's talking to the to the justice. And he's saying, well, why would you want to film this? I've seen this case. This, this isn't an interesting case. This isn't an interesting guy. You could film many much more interesting cases than this. And it really goes to show what Hossein is up against. He's been slotted since birth into a position of being not that kind of guy. <laughs> you know, no matter what no matter what poetry he sees inside himself. <laughs> There's not too much more to say about the plot. Hossein and the family participate in a reenactment of his arrest. At the end of the trial, we see that after an impassioned defense for himself, which the family initially treats rather skeptically, they say, well, how do we know that he's not just playing another role? The role of a man who's suffering, the role of somebody who's atoning. And, you know, I think to some extent, Kiristami leaves that ambiguous, you know, maybe... Maybe he is just playing a role. Maybe we're all just playing roles, you know? But ultimately, they decide to kind of let him off with a slap on the wrist. You know, this is a guy who hasn't done a crime like this before. Um, It's hard to imagine anyone doing a crime like this again. (laughs) And in the extraordinary final 10 minutes of the film, 
Hossein is united with the real Makmobov, who makes a guest appearance as himself. The two of them buy a little flower together as atonement and visit the home of the family. And uh, family's much more happy to see him now that he's got the actual Makmobov with him. And Hossein is so moved to be with the actual great filmmaker who he's impersonating that he's moved to tears. I think one last thing I would say about the film is there's been so much talk lately about Nepo babies, you know, so-called, uh, you know, how Hollywood is is overrun with them, you know, how everybody who's famous is is a Nepo baby. And I mean, look, Nepo babies, what can you say? It's the whole industry, you know. No one would say that Laura Dern doesn't deserve to be a famous actress and just got in right. Wait, wait, what's her uh, what's her background? Bruce Dern and Diane Ladd are her parents, you know? I don't know who, that, I don't know who they are. Bru- Bruce, I'm, oh, I'm afraid. well, we're going to educate Luke on some very good actors. You know, what can you say? Jean Renoir, his dad was Pierre-Auguste Renoir. <laughs> but I do think the Nepo baby term is useful insofar as it gets you thinking about the sorts of people who are who become filmmakers, the sorts of people who not just are allowed to become filmmakers, but to whom it's even a possibility. There is a certain meritocratic aspect of show business. You know, if you're an actor who's in a major movie, you know, you're, you're probably a pretty good actor. It's that competitive. But, you know, I can show you a lot of neighborhoods here in Toronto or in any city in any part of the world where, like, it's going to be a lot harder for them to ever get that first meeting. And Hossein is just such a guy. Well, I had another sort of qualified criticism I wanted to make of the Western reception to close up. And look, look again, I feel like I need to just say again that I'm not picking on Cheshire here. And like, look, I'm, I'm really not picking on him. But he says... When you write the Criterion essay, though, you become the official <laughs> essayist, so... Yeah, well, you know, he says, and like, and again, I'm not criticizing him. I don't think he's wrong about this, but he writes, close up seem to combine the social concern of Italian neorealism, to which the new Iranian films were often compared, with the French New Wave's cerebral self-expression and formal idiosyncrasy, and to project the whole into the vitalizing context of a post-revolutionary Islamic culture. And when we were preparing to record this episode, I was planning to issue a qualified criticism of that because, again, it sort of felt to me like part of this film's legacy in the West, which is that, you know, people, to some extent, can only receive it in relation to certain kind of Western idioms and through the locus of the American cultural relationship to Iran uh, more generally. But having watched the film and read about, uh, among other things, the way it's been received in the West and Kurostami's own career as a filmmaker, I think I've actually come away with a much more kind of positive reading of the valence close-up has taken on internationally. I mean, for one thing, it's mistaken in itself to think that a guy like Kiristami wasn't watching the French New Wave, wasn't consuming, you know, Italian neorealist films, and wasn't adapting them. But of course, it's also not the case that, you know, the Iranian New Wave isn't its own thing. You know, the Iranian New Wave isn't just like derivative of these kind of Western styles, which is a claim that I was, you know, preparing to dispute. This is a marketing thing more than anything. When you're selling a new New Wave to the world, it's much easier to sell it when you say, oh, it's kind of like the French New Wave. (laughs) Right, right. But, you know, what's really going on here is a much more democratic kind of international exchange. I mean, 
Kiarostami has its own legacy in the West, and so does the Iranian New Wave. I mean, among other things, Martin Scorsese, in the interview of, I don't know if you have the, I know we watched it together, or I think we watched it together, but in the Scorsese documentary, The Rolling Thunder Review, which, look, I know some of our listeners do not like the Bob Dylan episodes, but I'm sorry. We were I going, love them. We're, yeah, I, I'm a fan of them myself, and we're going to be uh, getting around to The Rolling Thunder Review, Scorsese's documentary about Bob Dylan's famous 1970 tour very soon. But there's an interview uh, that Scorsese does around the Rolling Thunder Review where he specifically cites Kiarostami as the main influence, not an influence to his approach in that film, but as the main influence. So, you know, I don't remember exactly what I said in our conversation about, you know, where to situate Tarkovsky and Ivan's childhood. But I think I would say something very similar in situating a film like Close Up, which is that even though, you know, like the films of Tarkovsky or any number of other artists we've discussed on this show, even though this film is, you know, the, the product of a very specific cultural context and then, you know, has a, has a reception, you know, outside of that context, fundamentally there's an internationalist reading of close-up on a political level, but also just on an artistic level. It's in conversation with world cinema. It's replying to world cinema, but also world cinema is replying back. Mm-hmm. 